Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Anatomy of Faith. The soul is like a judge in a court. There are two lawyers presenting their case and looking for a verdict. One is slick and his name is experience. And his agenda is to keep you in defeat and actually rule over you. The other's name is above all names. And his name is truth and he died to set you free as he reigns as king over all. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Father, I pray that you would lift high the name of Jesus Christ, that you would send forth your spirit to move within each of our hearts, our minds, that Jesus Christ would be exalted, that every eye would be focused on him, that we would know him in a deeper, more intimate way, I pray that the actual functionality, the practicality of the Christian life would be made manifest to our understanding. That we would see it, that we would know it, that we wouldn't just esteem the Christian life, but that we would live it and that we would be empowered to do so. I pray that there would be a fire that is planted within our souls. A fire that's not just passion, but it's purity that burns out anything that doesn't belong. Come, Lord Jesus, and make us uncomfortable. Make us uncomfortable for your glory that you might be seen more clearly in and through our lives. It's in the name of our great King Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right, you guys ready for this? The anatomy of faith. You know, there's titles that stir adrenaline in my bloodstream. That's not one that stirs adrenaline in my bloodstream like a good man title. But... This is a great message. I am very excited about this message. It's been sort of bubbling inside of me uh, all week long. When I was over in Indonesia with, with Ben, I just sort of had it uh, going around inside of me, and it had, it had to come out. It's like a, a volcano. That's the best way to describe how preaching works is that when you spend your life in the presence of God, he burdens your soul with things, and then they just have to come out. And when they come out, and usually he makes you wait a couple weeks to do it, too. It's just like, and then out it comes. And so beware, those of you that aren't familiar with uh, the way I preach, I can get loud at times. But it's not because I just like to talk loud. It's that I, I feel so strongly about it. So I can smile the moment after I do it. Okay, I'm not mad. Don't worry. This is a quote from uh, the book, The Bravehearted Gospel, uh, by a guy named Eric Ludy. Uh, Christianity is built on one very basic thing faith. And without faith, there isn't much left in the whole operation because everything in Christianity that matters operates with it. If you want grace, you need faith. If you want to know God's love and live in God's love, again, it's faith that provides the passport. Salvation? Yep, faith. Victory? Uh Uh-huh. Faith. Holiness? Faith. Righteousness? Faith. It says in Hebrews 11.6 that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Then again in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Oh, and yet again in Ephesians 2, 8, you are saved by grace through faith. It would appear that a lot rests on this idea of faith, and in fact, a lot does. In this whole gospel schematic, faith is the linchpin. If faith is absent, then the gospel is rendered powerless in a human life. Faith is the sole fuel upon which the gospel spark kindles and sets aflame. When you undermine faith, you undermine Christianity. And I've said this before in many ways, and you'll hear it this semester. When you undermine the text of Scripture, you undermine 
the text of Scripture made flesh in Jesus Christ. You do not mess with certain things in the gospel life. There are certain things that hold it together. And it's more than just glue. These are the long 50-foot nails that are stuck in to hold the entire system up. When you pull them out, the whole system collapses. You mess with the Word of God, you mess with the Word of God made flesh. And then if you've messed with Jesus, the whole situation collapses. The same is true with faith. You see, the enemy is very tactical and smart. He's a lot smarter than we are. And it's, you know, I know that that sounds like I'm paying him a compliment. Every once in a while, I'll pay the enemy sort of a backhanded compliment. But the enemy is brilliant. He is wickedly brilliant. In other words, he deceives himself. But he's very, very intelligent. But intelligence and IQ do not make a godly person. Okay, so this isn't necessarily a compliment. It's just a fact. The enemy is smarter than we are. He's been around baiting men and women on earth for 6,000 years. And when he first started, he was successful. And guess what? He uses the same techniques today. You'd think he would need to reinvent something because we would have figured it out. Isn't that an amazing thought? He says, oh, I'm not falling for that one. And guess what we do? We fall for the exact same thing that Eve fell for in the garden. This is an issue of faith. Whose evidence are you looking at? God has already made it clear. He's given his evidence. He says, believe this and you will live. The enemy comes in and says, ah, look at this. What you behold with the gaze of your soul is where you put your faith. You have faith, but a lot of us have faith that is misapplied. Faith that saves is faith placed in the work of God, in Jesus Christ, in the person of God, in the ability of God. Okay? You have faith. So some of you can say, I have no faith. You do have faith. But your faith is in yourself, your ability. I don't really need God. Your faith is in the power of sin over your life. Oh, and I've just been struggling with lust for 20 years. There's no way I can get out of it. Guess where your confidence lies? Your confidence lies in the ability of lust to hold you. You have no confidence in the ability of your God to rescue you. That's not faith in God. That's faith in sin. You have faith. When faith is eroded, the construct of faith is eroded, the power of faith is eroded in the Christian life, we live as a defeated church. And I say, no more. Faith is under siege. Some of the leading voices in Christianity are literally undermining the very moorings, very integrity of what faith is. Here's a couple examples. Rob Bell, one of my favorite men, uh, sponsors something, he started this about five or six years ago, sponsors something called Doubt Night. Now, it's based on a funny translation of the scripture that says, show compassion to those who doubt. And, which I'm all for it. If someone's doubting, it's not like I'm just going to come over and, you know, hit them over the head with a two by four. I will show compassion to them, but how do I show compassion? How do I show love to someone who's doubting? By giving them solid evidence of something to believe in. You see, you are in the midst of a debate in your soul. The enemy is plying you with his evidence. What do we do as Christians? We supply the evidence of God. Look at God. Look at his word. He has promised. Look at his nature. He does not lie. And when God, who cannot lie, promises, you can take it to the bank. That's how we respond, and that's how we show compassion to those who doubt. Okay, but doubt night is the celebration It's saying, 
good for you to come out of the closet and admit your doubt. You know what? There's probably a lot of doubt floating around in this room. You want to know how I deal with it? Not a doubt night. A sermon about faith. You want to deal with your doubt, start turning your eyes away from your junk and on to Jesus. He's a solution. Doubt has no place in the life of a Christian. And I'm going to make that clear today for those of you that really have been trying to coddle and nurture your doubt. You know, my doubt is just part of me. That's not going to last through this message. (laughs) Philip Yancey wrote a book called uh, Reaching for the Invisible God. It won the Christian Book of the Year. I wouldn't even mention a book like this. Uh, I wouldn't even give it the time of day. And the same with Rob Bell. I mean, I wouldn't even deal with what he says. The problem is, these are two of the most influential voices in Christianity. Rob Bell has shaped the entire emergent philosophy. Philip Yancey is the writer, the author to Pastors. There are more pastors in American Christianity today that quote from Philip Yancey than probably any other author alive. And yet his construct of faith is exactly opposite of the biblical construct. He has no biblical basis for his argument on faith. How in the world can pastors be duped for this? It's because he relates to them. He starts out and he says, you know what? I'm nothing more than a pilgrim, septic with doubt. He says, I'm actually afraid to write a book on faith because I'm afraid of having the people that read this book lose theirs. Thank you, Philip. Why don't you write your book to yourself? (laughs) We don't need to hear it in the body of Christ today. We do not celebrate doubt. If someone has a little doubt inside, we do not give them a microphone and say, spread it around. It's a disease. And we close it off and we sequester it. And then we come in with the freight train of truth and mow it down. Truth wins. God wins. God's truth is not going to be bullied around by this little pesky rodent known as doubt. Take your big boot and smash it. You cannot be a victim to doubt. So Philip Yancey has sort of created this concept of honest doubt. Another way of saying it is hip doubt. You know that's actually hip in Christianity to have doubt? Yeah, yeah, I've always wondered about that too. I mean, the virgin birth. Everyone makes it a big thing, but you know, I question that. Oh, really? You question the virgin birth, you question the messiahship of Jesus Christ. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, 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 then he is a false prophet, which is to be stoned, not believed in. Stoned! That's what the word of God before him proclaims. If we are going to be good Hebrews, we must stone this false messiah. You don't give your life to him. You don't submit to him. So what are you saying about the virgin birth again? You do not let the linchpin get pulled out. We fight over these things for centuries and centuries. We fight to uphold the integrity of the truth of Jesus Christ. Some of you are wondering what you just signed up for nine weeks of. (laughs) Six brilliant satanic maneuvers against the soul. All right, we have a courtroom. You are, in a sense, a judge. Now, I know that that sounds like I'm upgrading you quite a bit. But you are a judge in your soul. There are two attorneys that are coming before you and presenting their evidence. The enemy comes in and he presents his evidence. And he does this very, very well. He's very, very good at it. He is a slick attorney. He's the kind of guy with his hair greased back. If you were to look at him, you'd say, hmm, I don't know if I trust him. However, you trust his evidence all the time. 
You say you don't trust the enemy, but look at you. You're living in such a way where you're believing him. You're like, oh, I don't know what else to do. When his pleas and his arguments come to your soul, I'm going to teach you what to do with it. Six brilliant satanic maneuvers against the soul. Number one, pollution. The good old lust trick. Okay, puts a temptation, a visual temptation in front of us guys. And, and the next thing you know, there we are. We've, been, have, we've had a maneuver against our soul. Pollution has entered in, and guess what? Now suddenly we're, we're separated from the presence of God, feeling ashamed, and we can't pray. We can't minister the gospel. We can't share hope with other people. It's brilliant. The enemy knows what he's doing. Tiredness. At Ellerslie, we use the term noakakio. You'll figure out what that means soon. Distraction. The enemy can just get some noise off to the sides. Like, huh? What? I, like, one of my least favorite places to eat is a place like Chili's, okay, where they have televisions all over the place. Here I am out on a date with my beautiful wife, okay? And there's her head, and there's a TV right above it with some football game. I love you. <laughs> and Les is like, what are you looking at? I don't want to look at it. It's just right above your head. That's the way most of us are living our life as Christians. Here's the most beautiful God. And we got televisions all around and we cannot see straight. We cannot stay focused. Anxiety, fear. The term at Ellerslie is no miram, no. See, you don't know what that means maybe yet, but you will. We do not allow fear, anxiety, fretting into our lives. Anger, frustration. You see, these things are like juicy steaks. And the enemy serves them up. And he says, wouldn't you just love a bite? We're like, you know what? I am sort of hungry. You know, when you have a trial in your life, a challenge, why we turn to anxiety and fear is a very interesting thing. Because we know that it does us no good, if we think it through. It actually just poisons our soul. And yet here we are, in a time of crisis, the enemy will serve up the steak and say, you deserve it. Come on, if you don't eat the steak, nothing's going to happen. That's the only way you can solve this problem is by eating the steak of fear and anxiety and fretting. We're like, you know, that makes so much sense. We are duped by the most idiotic tactics. They don't make any sense if you look at them from a global heavenly vantage point, but we fall for them daily. No more. If you're going to grow up as a Christian, you have to know how the enemy works and you have to know how God works. And you have to know how the soul works. You have to understand the anatomy of faith. The enemy does. We don't. Well, look at this sixth one. Doubt. Now, that just happens to be what I'm focusing on today, which is why it got all bold there and big. Doubt. The enemy comes in in a time where there is something that would allude to the notion that God has forgotten you. I mean, you prayed. And he says, whatsoever you ask in my name, it shall be done. And yet, nothing's happening. I mean, one day has passed since you started praying. I mean, there's a reasonable argument from the enemy to say, well, you might as well give up. It looks like God has forgotten you. Or maybe God doesn't even exist. Big juicy steak. And we're like, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. Doubt is idiocy at the highest level. The anatomy of the human battle. Now, you'll see you are up there with two eyeballs. Look at that. It's a nice set of eyes you have there. Uh, it's called Faith. Okay, you have faith, and your eyes are going to look somewhere. They're the eyes of your soul, and these are the two attorneys. You have fact and experience. Okay, fact is merely truth for those that, you know, that would rather call it truth. And it's like, I don't like the term fact for God's stuff. You know, it's just like it, it seems too impersonal. Well, two plus two equals four. 
And no matter what you do, it will always equal four. No matter how you feel about it, it will equal four. No matter your experience on planet Earth of having bad experiences with the number two, it makes no difference. Two plus two equals four. In other words, you have no say in it. It is true outside of you. It is known as a fact. And God is fact. He is not wishful thinking. That's a very, very important thing for you to notate in your soul because the enemy will make an appeal. And he will say, look at this. The natural evidence says this. God is merely a concept. God is merely an illusion. God is merely a thought. Well, God is fact. God is real. God is true. And so there's a debate between fact and experience. The only thing the enemy has is experience, emotion. He has to appeal to a part of you that would seem reasonable. And so he'll appeal to your feelings. How do you feel about this right now? I don't feel good. Well, then leave God. Desert God if you're not feeling good. Question God. Get angry at God. This is how the enemy works. This is not how you are supposed to work as a Christian. I know we've been bullied around by the enemy. No more. We are not the enemy's plaything. We belong to Jesus Christ, redeemed, bought by his blood. So what we have here, let's look at the experience side. This is the enemy's plea. This is his steak dinner. Feelings and emotions. He loves to play upon your feelings and emotions as a lead instrument for discerning truth. Well, how do you feel about it? Well, I feel that's true. Well, that makes no difference. It either is true or not. How are we supposed to know truth? It's all relative, isn't it? This is how the enemy works. So that's your truth. This is my truth. Can you have a truth different than someone else? It really makes no difference what your truth is or their truth is. What is the truth? There is a north whether you acknowledge it as north or not. Two plus two equals four whether you acknowledge it or not. You can have your private interpretation of two plus two. My two plus two equals seven. And someone could say, well, it's good for you that you would be bold enough to enunciate your personal convictions about two plus two. That doesn't make you right. Just because you're sincere about it doesn't protect you from being sincerely wrong. Two plus two equals four. It always will. God is who he says he is, and he defines truth. What God says goes. The appeal of anxiety. I mean, it's such a strong appeal. I mean, just listen. if we listen to the voice, the appeal of lethargy. Oh, you're so tired. Give up. A man comes home from work, the very moment his kids need him, the very moment his wife needs him, and he's never felt so tired in his life. Just give way to the lethargy. Give way to tiredness. Go to sleep. The appeal of grievance. I'm offended. I can't believe they did that to me. One of the number one access points to strong Christian lives is through the appeal of grievance. You were just minding your own business, going about your life, Loving people, serving people, and then this bullet came in from the side from someone you trusted. And you hold a grievance, and guess what? The enemy strolls right in. He takes a claim on a portion of your life because of it. Do not be duped by the enemy. Let's look at the other side. Fact. The Word of God. Where do we find fact? The Word of God. It's just Eric's definition of it. It's like, you know what, I would like to say that God is fact, and then I come up with the definition of what fact is. Fact is outside of Eric Ludi. In fact, you test everything Eric Ludi is saying with the word of God. Everything. Don't buy a word that I say unless it matches 100% with the word of God. 
The Word of God rules around here. The Word of God rules in the church of Jesus Christ. Your emotion doesn't. Your feelings and sensibilities don't. I know we have political correctness, and I know we have social sensibilities out there. However, if they disagree with the Word of God, who's right, who's wrong? If political correctness is against the Word of God, it's wrong. If social sensibilities are against the Word of God, it's wrong. I know it sounds harsh. It's just truth. If you want your life to work, you have to start agreeing with God. The promises, the unseen realities, the nature of God. You see, these are the things that God is bringing to bear. Where you set your eyesight, the soul eyesight on, defines where your faith lies. Is your faith and confidence in what the, is, in, is in what the enemy is bringing to the table? If it is, your soul rots. If your confidence and your eyesight is firmly fixed on that which God is speaking, guess what? You have life and life abundant. Here's our Greek word for the day. Diakrino. A lot of times diakrino is defined or, or translated as doubt in Scripture. However, it's bigger than doubt. Okay? It means to side against something. In other words, the enemy brings in an apple. I know that most likely the fruit in the garden probably wasn't an apple. But since that's the nice symbol of it. The enemy provides us the temptation of a luscious looking fruit. And when we choose that fruit, God has already made his statement clear. Stay away from that tree. You know what we're doing? We're siding against God by believing the enemy. We are believing someone. We are putting our belief. We're called believers as Christians, but when we are unbelievers, we're still believing in something. We're believing the lie of the enemy. We're known as unbelievers. When we yield to what the enemy is sticking in front of us, we say, I agree with you, enemy, over God. And we believe in the enemy's bait. It means to side against, to ally with one over against another. Who are we allying with? Satan over God. Lie over truth. To forsake a previous allegiance. To waver in support of one candidate and vote in support of another. Isn't it disgusting to just think of someone just wobbling back and forth? So like, I'm just, I'm just not sure. And both candidates are making such a good claim. Change, change, change. Weighing the evidence. So we have evidence that's coming from two sources, of the deceiver and of the redeemer. Let's look at the evidence of the, of the deceiver. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. Diacrino. She sided against God with the enemy. So even though it's defined as doubt in the Bible, it's a more robust understanding. It's an issue of soul allegiance. Well, so how about uh, the evidence of our Redeemer? Behold, which means to see, discern, inspect, examine. You notice that both of them include eyesight. The enemy is saying, see, look. And God's saying, behold, look, examine, inspect what I have done. Look to the cross. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Here's the uh, great line in the Bible. You know, one of the statements is no akekio that we have at Ellerslie. Then we have no miram no. Well, we have a new one to add to it. No diacrino. None of them really sound that poetic, but they're very, very important to our souls. 
This is what it would mean. Do not examine the deceiver's evidence. Well, that's not being open-minded. I mean, I want to be open. I mean, if Buddha has something to say, I need to be listening to it, don't I? I mean, what about Muhammad? These guys have some good things to say. Do not examine the enemy's goods. When the enemy sticks a stake out, you immediately knock it out of his hand. I will not entertain such notions. It's called taking every thought captive to the will of Christ Jesus. No! No diacrino! Knock it out of his hand! Your eyes stay fixed on the truth of Jesus Christ, and you do not falter. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt. Well, think about what this is actually saying. This is Jesus talking. And he says, for assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and has no diacrino, he does not waver. He does not look to the enemy's bait. He does not look to the fact that, hey, guess what? It's impossible to move mountains and throw them into the sea. That's what the enemy's saying. What is the enemy's voice saying? It's impossible. You can't do that. He who does not listen to the enemy's bait but stays focused and says, my God has promised and he is well able. What will happen? But believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Then the Spirit told me, speaking about Peter, Peter's talking, and the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. This is what the Spirit told to Peter. No diacrino. I want you to follow them to Cornelius' house, but don't waver. I'm speaking to you right now. Stay focused on me. I know what the enemy's going to try and tell you. He's going to say, I'm not supposed to have anything to do with the Gentiles. Stay focused. Your God is speaking to you right now. Speaking of Abraham, he staggered not. What does that mean? He had no diacrino. That's what the word is in the Greek. Abraham had no diacrino. He did not consult the enemy's bait. He did not examine the evidence. But he turned and focused on the promise of God. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was also able to perform. Diacrino is a fierce allegiance to self's unlawful position in the human soul. You see, you have a part of you that is a renegade against God, and it's seated on the throne of your life. It's you. What are you doing in that spot? That spot belongs to Jesus Christ, and there you are. If you were to look a little more closely, you're on the throne. The reason that sin has power over your life, which we'll go into in great detail... Here at Ellerslie, when we go through the anatomy of how your body works, how sin works, the reason that sin has power over your life is because you are seated in the spot that belongs to Jesus Christ. And as a result, self, Diacrino is a fierce allegiance to self's unlawful position in the human soul. Leave me alone. I want to remain in this control position. That's why you're listening to the enemy. You're being deceived. And as a result, when the enemy comes in, you're extra vulnerable to it. You're intellect is clouded. Your spiritual discernment is clouded. You cannot see straight. And so he baits you with fear and anxiety. You're like, that makes sense. And as a result, even greater power of the enemy moves in and continues to weigh down your life. It is the lawyerly representation of the soul to prove why self can and must maintain its jurisdiction and authority and why surrender unto Christ is unnecessary and unwise at this juncture. 
it's, it'd be unwise to give up your life to Jesus Christ right now. You know, maybe in the future someday, but not now. Right now, you just need to rest. You just need to maintain the status quo. Just remain in your position. I think that would be the healthiest. It is the badgering of the witness of the Holy Scripture. Scripture starts speak, speaking to you, and you start, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. I don't, no, no. There must be a reason. I mean, that, but that was Paul writing. He said he wasn't, did, wasn't speaking in the authority of, of God. No, 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 there's a reason here. That's always been a debatable scripture. We don't know what to do with that. Pretty soon you've eradicated the entire Bible with your smooth lawyer at your side. It is a badger into the witness of the Holy Spirit. When, the, when God convicts you, you say, no, that wasn't God. Oh, no, that, God wouldn't care about things like that. Are you sure? Have you read the Bible? No, you scrapped the Bible. That's right. That's why you don't recognize the Holy Spirit when he speaks to you. You see, you're badgering the witness. The enemy's coming in. Giving you the bait. And as a result, when God's coming in and giving you the evidence to rescue your soul, you're listening to the enemy's take. And the calling up a fleshly and natural witness in an attempt to continually disapprove and nullify the testimony of heaven. Great Aunt Martha prayed and nothing seemed to happen for her. You know how often we do this? We come up with experiences of even other people. We're like, yeah, Uncle Henry. You know, he once went to church and his life fell apart. What is that to you? Follow God. I don't know what's going on with great Aunt Martha and Uncle Henry. I'm interested in what God said. He cannot lie. Follow him. The anatomy of doubt. Now you'll notice you, faith, dropped into a very unhealthy position here. You see, look where your eyes are looking. Your eyes are looking at experience, feelings, emotions, the appeal of anxiety, the appeal of lethargy, and the appeal of grievance. That's just not healthy. I'm not exactly sure why you're doing this. Okay, this is what we all do, don't we? This is how we all are. We're naturally wired this way. We have a problem. See that black strip in there? You can call it the wall of diacrino. You see, you are siding against God when you look at the enemy's goods. When you listen to the enemy, you are not listening to God. You have one master over your soul. Where your eyes turn masters you. What are you looking at? Are you looking at the enemy's bait? You see, this is diacrino also known as doubt. I don't care what the modern Christian church says. Oh, let's celebrate the fact. Oh, could we have some people stand up that are staring at doubt right now? Please share your story. Oh, yay. That is wonderful. Thanks for just being honest. You know what? It's good to be honest, and I'm not against it. However, we want to be honest to say, that's my condition, and I need out. That's the honesty that we need. I'm in sin in this situation. I'm defrauding my God of my allegiance. That's what we acknowledge when we're in doubt. I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a savior to rescue me and to turn the eyesight of my soul in the right direction. The seriousness of the command. Is this important? To entertain doubt is to stand against the truth. It's not just to have a little doubt and a little truth. To to entertain doubt. When doubt comes... It's to stand against the truth. Your eyes are turning their focus towards the enemy's goods. To eat of the apple or the fruit is to stand against God's command. Eve did not make the plea and say, hey, God, it was just a little doubt. We are going to just have a doubt night tonight. She was rejected, cut off, eternally damned because of this. 
This is what our Messiah came to rescue us from. So to entertain it, to celebrate it at even the slightest level is to rob our Jesus of his due. To show hospitality, oh, come on in, come on in doubt, diacrino, a little bit of it. To show hospitality in the slightest degree to the pleas of the naturalistic attorney is to make place for the enemy. To fix the eyes of your soul on the deceiver's evidence is to lend credence, lend it credence and power in your life. This is important. This is a quote from E.M. Bounds. Doubt should never be cherished, nor fears harbored. Let none cherish the delusion that he is a martyr to fear and doubt. I have no control. They They just rule me. It is no credit to any man's mental capacity to cherish doubt of God, and no comfort can possibly derive from such a thought. Our eyes should be taken off self, removed from our own weakness, and allowed to rest implicitly upon God's strength. A simple confiding faith, living day by day and casting its burden on the Lord each hour of the day, will dissipate fear, drive away misgiving, and deliver from doubt. Luke 18. When the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? If he were to come right now, where would he see the eyes of your soul looking? What are they focused on? Because that's what he's looking for. He's looking to see where the eyes of your soul are centered. Are you staring at your circumstances in life? Your woes, your trials, your difficulties? Are you focused on your weakness? Because that's what we oftentimes do. I just am so weak. I've been dealt a difficult hand. If you're focused there, you are weak. Where are you supposed to be looking? What is faith? Faith is a deliberate choice of the soul to say, I turn away from that evidence. I will not be baited by it. It's crippling me. Not on my weakness, on his strength. When people come to you and say, oh, what, you've gone through a difficulty, and my God is able. Oh, it must be so hard. It's wonderful with my God. That's the fact. Is it true or not? You must decide in your soul what you believe. Is God able? Is God good? Does God love you? Has God redeemed you? Do you have something worth celebrating? It's not your doubt. It's your victory. It's your confidence. You know what we should have? Faith night. Not a bad idea. How does faith function? Faith is an exclusive covenant relationship between the eyesight of the human soul and its lone source of truth, the word of God. You make a covenant with your soul. You say, I do not look at the enemy's goods. I look only at the word of God. What you say go, goes, God. What you say is all that matters to me. It's truth. Well, what about all these circumstances? What about all these natural things? What about all the bait? What about great Aunt Martha? Eh, I don't even consider it. All I consider is the word of God. Faith can allow no reticence to remain. No laurely remonstrance from the flesh to be heard. No evidence from the natural to be brought before the judge of the mind. That attorney tries to come up, just knock him in the teeth. I'm staring over here. That's what I do for a living. I do not listen to the enemy's bait. Does it come to me? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I might get more of it than you do. And you get stronger every time you punch it in the teeth. You stay focused on Jesus Christ and you keep taking captive to the will of Christ Jesus every thought of the devil that attempts to come against your soul. No! No! I will not listen. I will not heed. 
Faith is exclusivity of thought. Deliberate choosing to deafen to the loyally counsel Raylan's accusations and concerns of the flesh. Faith is the spiritual discerning of God's way and then the bold movement forward in it. When you see what God says, what do you do? You don't just stare at it and say, oh, that's good. You move. You step into it. This is truth. And if it is truth, live it. Believe it. Act upon it. Here at Ellerslie, we call it reckoning. Reckon it. Faith is complete and utter confidence in the ability of God to perform that which he has promised to perform. It does not waver or hesitate, cower or retreat, even in the face of the most gross and insurmountable natural obstacles. Faith is wholly given to the opinion of God and trusts it implicitly. Faith is fiercely loyal to the word of God, and even at the risk of public ridicule, it is willing to put all its chips on God and live. How does doubt function? It exalts the notion of self-counsel. There's something going on inside of you. And there is a factor. You have the flesh and the spirit as defined in the New Testament. You have this voice. It's really strange. And it actually counsels you against God. You would, don't even know that you have it oftentimes. Come to Ellerslie and you hear it all the time. It's like, whoa, boy, that voice is loud. Don't go that direction. Don't yield to Jesus. You were a normal Christian. In your environment that you came from, you were the strong one. And you come here and all you hear is, don't do it. No, don't trust that wacko guy up on stage. He's leading you over a cliff. There is a voice and it's very strong. It's called the flesh. And it counsels us against the spirit of God and the word of God. And it's very loud. How does doubt function? It exalts the notion of self-counsel. We could call it flesh counsel. It says, no, this is the voice that saves me. And we pet it. We take care of it. This is my precious voice. This is the voice that gives me what I need to hear. To, and it's always given me good information. I mean, look it. Look how healthy I am. <laughs> Doubt is the voice of the natural man. It favors the kingdom of self, the control of self, and is antagonistic toward the incoming regime of the Spirit of God. It is the voice of doubt. It's, if this voice of doubt is not silenced, then the Christian man integrates this voice into the voice of the Spirit of God and begins to assume that this voice is the Spirit of God. If you do not eradicate and remove the voice of the flesh, you know what you do as a Christian? You begin, I'm using big words, I know, immolate, integrate. You begin to absorb that voice into your understanding of the voice of the Spirit of God within you. And when the voice of the flesh speaks to you, you go, yes, God, I'm listening. You treat the voice of the flesh as the voice of God. And yet, if you ever test that voice and measure it against Scripture, it's totally against God. And yet you have justified it. It's the entire modern Christian culture today. We have justified the voice of the flesh and defined it as the voice of the Spirit of God. If this voice of doubt is not silenced, then the Christian life is built on a false premise of self-counsel rather than spirit scriptura counsel, thus generating a life that lives from the flesh as its source rather than from the spirit and faith and love. And such a life is sin unto God. It cannot please God and is damnable in the eyes of heaven. See, that's why we have to give this message. The anatomy of true believing. Now, something good has happened. You see the eyes of faith? Where have they turned? Fact, the word of God, the promises, the unseen realities, the nature of God. You know that they have their back turned to something. What is their back turned to? Experience, feelings, emotions, the appeal of anxiety, the appeal of lethargy, the appeal of grievance. If you focus on fact, your experience will come into alignment. 
Your actual life will match up with the truth of God that you are focused on. But if you focus on experience instead of fact, you are not only disconnected from God and outside the pale of his protection, but your life falls apart accordingly. This is true believing. You see, there's a black line there. Isn't that interesting? And you, you were saying, well, that's the wall of diacrino. You said no diacrino. Well, just wait. There is a diacrino that is healthy. But you are not. Remember I defined diacrino as consulting or examining the evidence of the enemy? You know what a healthy diacrino would be? Well, that would, let, me, let me say it this way. Diacrino is examining the evidence of the enemy. Boy, I just confused a lot of you there. The unhealthy diacrino, I'm starting over on this one. The unhealthy diacrino is to examine the evidence of the enemy. The healthy diacrino is to put a wall up and only examine the evidence of God. Speaking of Abraham, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith. He kept his eyes fixed on the promise, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Jacob wrestled, this is Ian Bounds again, Jacob wrestled not so much with a promise as with the promiser. Jacob, in the dark of the night, grabs a hold of God and says, I will not let go. This is actually where the name Israel comes from. You want to become the true Israel? You grab a hold of God. Not the enemy. Not the enemy's goods. You grab a hold of God. But it's not just his promise. You are grabbing a hold of him. And the reason you have confidence in his promises is because you are grabbing a hold of the promiser and you know his nature. Examine the evidence. The promiser. What do we know about the promiser? He cannot lie. He will not change. He is the same forever. And he is eager to answer. That's who we're holding on to. It's not wishful thinking. Oh, I wish God couldn't lie. Oh, I wish that he was the same yesterday, today, and forever. I wish he wouldn't change, but oh. Our confidence rests in the revelation of God himself to us. He says, people, I cannot lie. I will not lie. It is not in my nature to do it. So when I speak, you can take me at my word. And so when he speaks, he is legally bound to perform it. Legally! And he's God who cannot lie. And he's able to perform anything he promises. Can you think of anyone in all the universe that is able to do everything they speak? He can. And he's spoken. And he will not change, which means he didn't change his mind somewhere along in history. He spoke it. He meant it. He did not stutter. And now he says, believe it. And if you believe it, you'll be saved. The oft-overlooked key to faith See, we could just end the message right there, but you would be missing a very, very important dimension. Because some of you are saying, oh, it sounds so easy. Okay, I'll just turn my attentions away from what the enemy is saying, and I'll focus on God's truth. The moment you turn, you have to be tested. You have to be proven. Because for faith to be true faith, there must be a test. It's called the test of faith in Scripture. So it must be tested to become fully effective. Now, some of you are going, this stinks. Why can't I just turn and believe God? I mean, why? well, you can, but do you mean it? Remember what God can't stand? He can't stand a waffler. He can't stand a waverer. He can't stand that one that's like a wave of the sea being tossed here and there. 
It's disgusting to him. The enemy doesn't like it either. Pick a side. Who are you with? Because if you're a waffler, guess what? You're not on God's side. You have to be soul fixed and with him. And when he speaks, you follow it and you follow it forever. I don't care what the enemy brings up. You're not listening to it. And that's 50 years from now. You stay focused and keep walking. Faith knows that the natural man, the natural world, and all the natural laws defy the living God and his rulership. And therefore seeks not the counsel, the endorsement, the validation of these icons of culture to back the idea of belief. And in fact, fully expects them to attempt to refute it. When you turn towards Jesus Christ, and some of you in this semester are going to make big decisions, you're going to say, I'm all in. I'm sick and tired of that life. I'm living for Jesus Christ. You must fully expect that the enemy, this natural world around you, are going to do everything they can to refute and to contradict what you are standing for. This is how it works. I'm just preparing you. Faith must be tested. Expect the natural world around you to defy what you stand for. And when they do, you smile. You say, oh, this is that test. See, if you don't know the test is coming, you oftentimes wobble at the knees. But you must know the battle that you're in. Trial by fire is what it's called. I know it doesn't sound very fun. This is what will save you. Noah, tested by a cloudless sky for 40 to 70 years. So a debate of how long it took him to build the ark. I've always said 100, or some people say 120, but technically, if you look a little closer, somewhere between 40 to 70 years, okay? Sorry to add that little piece of trivial information in. That's a long time! Did you notice I said cloudless sky? Could you imagine? Yeah, it's going to rain. Uh-huh. And I'm going to build this huge boat on dry land. That's a test of faith, called a trial by fire. Abraham tested by both the sheer impossibility of the promise and the interminable passage of time. Years and years and years keep passing. Not only that, but Sarah, his wife, keeps getting older and older and older. What do you believe in, Abraham? I trust you, God. You have promised, and you will perform that which you promised. I will not waver. I will not doubt. Jacob was tested by the long, dark night. Caleb tested by the 31 hostile giant empires. These are all great stories, by the way. David tested by the lion, the bear, and the 12 and a half foot tall man beast. Mary and Martha tested by Lazarus's four days in the tomb. Jesus says this sickness will not end in death. Now what does he do? He leaves town. Uh, Jesus, guess what's going to happen to you, by the way? Jesus is going to give your soul a promise. You're going to see it in the word of God. And you're going to stand up. And the first thing that you're going to perceive is that it appears that God left town. Uh, God, I'm standing for you here. It'd be sort of nice if you were near. Uh, hey, remember me? I'm the guy that stood on your promises. He goes, are you going to continue to? Even when it appears that I'm out of town. Because I'm not. I'm very near. But I'm watching your soul right now because something must take place in your soul to make that faith real. It has to be tested and it has to walk through that fire and get to the other side. Four days pass after Lazarus dies. Remember what Jesus said? This sickness will not end in death. Uh, He sort of looks dead right now. 
Hey, wrap them in burial cloths. Stick them in a grave. Uh, yeah, he's kind of dead. Four days passes. What are you believing in? Because the natural realm is telling you that Jesus lied. The natural realm is telling you that your God has forsaken you. What are you believing in? Are you going to doubt your God? You keep your eyes focused. You keep walking. My God has promised he cannot lie. I don't care how loud the enemy's voice gets. You stay fixed on your God. That's faith. The disciples tested by the boat filling up with water. Jesus is sleeping. Little panic beginning to set in here. How about your boat? When it appears that your God is asleep and your boat is filling up with water and it said that they were in jeopardy of their lives and he's sleeping? Do they trust him? You know what he rebuked them for? Not having faith. (laughs) Excuse me, God, but what am I supposed to do? Obviously, they were supposed to have faith that the one in the boat with them was able. And if he's sleeping, they should go to sleep too. Could you imagine they all lay down? It's filling up with water, but my God's sleeping. (laughs) Who knows what God would have done? Peter tested by the natural laws of water and men walking upon it. Well, in my research... You can't walk on water. Could you imagine Peter had all his research, all of his experience, all of the natural world telling him that you can't do it. And Jesus says, no, come on. You can do it because I'm here with you. Um, All right. Uh, And he steps out. What is the test of faith? Not only that, but then the the wind and the waves start blowing against him. And guess what? He sunk. And it says that he doubted. Unbelief. He had little faith. He wavered when the winds and the waves came against him. And we're like, that's just natural. Of course it's natural, but that's not Christian. We focus on Jesus Christ even when the winds and the waves come against us. And we stay focused. He says, keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on me. Those winds and waves cannot have you. You know what will happen? Those winds and waves, you must trust your God. John tested by the sight of the Messiah suffering, dying, and being buried. Okay, your Messiah has come to rescue you. John the Apostle is literally watching Jesus suffer, die, and be buried. What what is your confidence in? You see, we have a risen Savior. But what if you were staring at a grave with a big, huge, heavy stone rolled in front of it? How are you feeling about your Messiah right now? Do you trust him? Do you keep your eyes focused and say, I don't care what it looks like in the natural. My God is victorious. My God cannot be defeated when my God promises he cannot lie and he will fulfill his promises. That's faith. It might seem like stupidity at times, but it's the ultimate wisdom. Who are you believing in? The enemy or God? God is the only trustworthy one. This guy's a deceiver. Listen to God. The trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. What is faith? It is tangible, credible, substantial evidence witnessed or seen by the eyes of the human soul and thusly lent the entirety of the soul's agreement, loyalty, and support. Eh, A little confusing, maybe. God sets before you evidence, supernaturally given you. By the way, you cannot believe in God without his help. And he sets before you the evidence of the kingdom. And he says, do you see it? 
Supernaturally, the soul has been awakened. And you see it. You're like, God, you're real. He lays it before you. You turn the eyes of your soul away. And you repent of your old thinking. And you give yourself wholly and say, I trust you. And that's the act of believing. We believe our God's evidence. Faith is that evidence. It's not wishful thinking. I have a concrete confidence in my God's ability. I do. And there are times I'll be walking and someone will say, well, what about this? How's that going to work? Watch what God will do. I say it all the time. Watch what God will do. I'm absolutely confident that my God wins. And I'm very confident about what he's doing. In certain situations, I have specific faith. No, I know what God's going to do in this situation. Watch. I'll even tell people what he's going to do. God is going to do this. How do I know that? Not sure. But I have evidence. It's substance of things hoped for. It's evidence of things unseen. And it's in my soul. The same way the enemy brings an example of Lazarus being dead in a tomb. That's an evidence. And I say, I don't care what the enemy's evidence is. I care what God's is. And I know Lazarus is going to rise again. And people can say, that's ludicrous. It's evidence in my soul. I know it just as well as I would if I were reading a legal document with someone's handwritten signature on it. I have God's blood on it. And I will not move. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Remember this trial by faith? What did Abraham have to do before he obtained? You see, we all want to obtain the stuff of Scripture. Well, God, if you just bring it into me and force it down my throat, then I would believe. God says, you believe, then you endure, then you receive the promise. We want to skip over all of Christianity. We want it easy. And the reason we believe the enemy's bait is we don't understand the anatomy of it. We're expecting, oh, God, I don't have it yet, but I've, I've believed you. You need to be tested in that belief, and then you need to patiently endure in that belief. You need to wait and hold on and keep your eyes focused no matter what is happening around you. No matter what the enemy brings to the table, you do not heed it. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. It's that simple. You know, Paul, which I would credit, credit to be the writer of Hebrews, says he is faithful that promised. Makes his simple statement. Oh, no, he promised and he's faithful, which means you can put your faith in him and he will prove faithful. He's full of everything you will need to match your faith. So don't waver. Does he make it sound so easy? No, don't waver. Just stay focused. Don't listen to what the enemy has to say. Punch him in the teeth. Take every thought captive to the will of Christ Jesus. Anything that would defy the revelation of God's word, you hit it. And give it no mercy. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. What would it mean to draw back? God, they got a really good point here. The just shall live by faith. Keep your eyes on the prize. But but God, I understand what you're saying, but you're taking a long time. This is a very good argument. I think we could come up with some sort of compromise here. 
and I could be sort of half in on you and half here in the natural realm sort of making everything work. Mm -hmm. Welcome to most of our lives. My soul, says God, shall have no pleasure in him. Ah. The six basic principles of faith. Number one, the laws of heaven trump the laws of this earth and world. The laws of nature are subservient to the laws of the Spirit of God. You know that God is above natural law? He created natural law, but he is above it. Jesus made that very clear. He just goes strolling across on a lake. Uh, Jesus, you can't do that. And God's saying, I can. You see, his agenda in our life isn't to get us to walk on water. But he demonstrated when he was here on earth that he is higher. So if he promises you something, but it defies the natural realm, the natural laws, guess what? You believe your God because he's stronger than any natural law. You know that people don't get healed just on their own? You know, cancer just, pew, just disappears from the body. It just doesn't happen on its own. However, God overrules the natural realm. He is able. It's an important thing for faith. You must know that. This is one of the key laws of faith. Two, spiritual assurance is gained only through spiritual means. In other words, you're saying, I want to keep my eyes focused. I want to be strong in this direction, but I feel the pull. It's like a vacuum suction in the direction of the enemy's bait. How do you gain spiritual assurance? It's only gained through spiritual means. Prayer, obedience, patient endurance, and purity of soul. If you're not obeying God in the small things, then your faith is not strong. And you will find yourself susceptible and the voice of the enemy will become increasingly larger. So if you want to be strong in this direction, you have to live the life too. You can't just esteem the life. You need to give yourself to Jesus and say whatever you want. Your way is my way. Number three, faith is based on fact or truth and not on wishful or positive thinking. This needs to be a redefinition in Christianity. We have this notion that if you wish for things, oh, I just want things to be good. That's not what faith is. Faith is based on God's fact. It's a very real glimpse into the plans, purposes, and power of the Almighty and being convinced of both his desire and his ability to carry out those plans and purposes. Four, for faith to grow, it must be fully invested. If you have a little faith, let's, let's liken faith to 100 coins. If you have 100 coins of faith, most of us want to stick in 10 on God. Because if he fails us, then we still have 90 to get us to heaven. We don't want to be disillusioned, okay? We just we want to play this conservative. God says, for faith to work, see those 100 coins you have? Put them all on the table. Shove them all in. Do you believe me or not? Either I am the God of the universe, either I am the creator, either I am the one who has promised and cannot lie, or I'm not. Either the enemy is right or he's not. You choose your master. Take those hundred coins that you have and put them on Jesus. Five, faith, if it is real, is always tested to prove its authenticity. If your faith is not being tested, very likely it's not real faith. You stick yourself in on Jesus Christ, you put your hundred coins in, suddenly you recognize what it means to be tested. The enemy wants to bring you down, and your God wants to purify your faith and make it strong. Number six, faith, if it is real, remains steadfast and unshaken, 
even when the natural realm lays out its arguments and presents its case of the utter impossibility of the task. So if it's real faith, it will not buckle under when the impossibility starts staring it in the face. I guarantee you, you're going to find impossibilities unlike you've ever seen before. You know what you begin to do with impossibilities, though, as a Christian? This is really fun. You smirk at them. You smile at them. You get even more excited. Oh, good, an impossibility. Oh, I, I love it. I love it because this is only going to show all the more the power of my God. See, most of us don't like impossibilities. We like things to be easily understood, but guess what? If things are not matched against impossibilities, you know what? Your faith will not grow. Because, well, it could have been just natural occurrence that that happened. But when it's an impossible situation, guess who gets the credit? God. The parking lot. Now, this is something when I was praying this week about this message. I'm not going to brag about my illustration here, okay? Even though I'm going to brag about my uh, graphic illustration that I have. Look at that. (laughs) Isn't that impressive? So I'm going to brag about that. I'm not going to brag about... Uh, my illustration. The parking lot isn't the most romantic concept, okay? But what I want you to picture is that the top stream is the Spirit of God. The bottom stream is sort of the, the Spirit of this world. It's everything dark. This is our life. This is the anatomy of faithless living, okay? There is a wall of diacrino that is blocking the work of God in our life. And so our, the entirety of our parking lot is the junk and the fruit of the enemy. We are taking, look at the bottom. There's a green line on the bottom, which means go, enter. You can come on in. The enemy has unlimited access to our life when we live blocking God. When we live without confidence and faith in our God. You can be near God, it doesn't make any difference. You have to believe your God. You have to turn your eyes on his word and on his promises and say, I trust you. It's the key, the key transaction point of the soul. And so look at that parking lot. It looks like a lot of our lives. It's full of junk, darkness, okay? There's no access point for God's stuff, if you will, to get into your life, to change it. Apistia, it means unbelief, absence of faith, withholding agreement with God. That's what we just saw there. It's, it's the word used here, and he did not many mighty works there because of their apistia. This is Jesus in his hometown. And he was unable to do mighty works in his hometown, because remember, a prophet is not received uh, in his hometown, because of the people's apistia, their unbelief. They had no access, no allowance for him to be the Messiah. And that's what's going to happen in your life. There'll be no mighty works in your life. Jesus is there. (laughs) He's hanging out with you, but he cannot do the mighty works because of your unbelief. And then this is the same scripture we, we've seen about Abraham. And he staggered not at the promise of God through apistia. He didn't stagger. He did not fall for the enemy's bait. He had belief. He was not an unbeliever. Apatheo, to not allow oneself to be persuaded. God comes in with his arguments and we say, no, I am not going to be persuaded toward God. It's a very dangerous state of soul. To refuse or to withhold belief. You literally have the spark of belief, but you press it down and say, I don't want it. To refuse belief and obedience, to not comply. Very dangerous thing. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that is apatheo toward the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I would highly encourage you to avoid apatheo. Apistos. 
Unbelieving, incredulous, without trust in God, absence of faith. Unto the pure, all things are pure. Unto them that are defiled, and a pistos is nothing pure. This is the parking lot full of junk. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. If you live without your faith and confidence in God, in his word, in his nature, and in his promises, guess what? Your mind and your conscience are defiled. Your inner life is disgusting. Your parking lot is full of all sorts of dark cars. You like my dark cars? Those are pretty interesting. They look like some kind of FBI vehicle. I'm going to skip this, unfortunately. See, here's another one of these. I have four of these, okay? So if you're impressed with these, I have two more I'm going to come out with. The anatomy of the modern gospel. Okay, this is the way a lot of us have been taught and the way a lot of us have lived. What you're going to notice is there's a little green bar up top. And some of you are like, yes! Okay, we got the green bar. We have some faith in Christ. Yeah, but you notice that we also have some blockage up top. A little diacrino hanging out up there. And then look at the bottom. The funny thing about the bottom is the green is still down there. You see, you're wavering back and forth. On a daily basis, you go, God, God, God. Oh, no, 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 that's a good point, enemy. Anxiety, lust, fear. Oh, God, God, God. Hmm, interesting point, enemy. I agree. Doubt, doubt, doubt. Come on. Pull yourself together. Let's live as Christians. This is not Christianity. Look what's happening here. Now, to give you an example, we're getting some good stuff in our life. This is how some of you have spent most of your Christian life. You have some good stuff. Look at the parking lot. There's some nice-looking cars there, other than the FBI vehicles, okay? I especially like uh, the orange one. For some reason, that's very attractive to me. Uh, So you have some orange in your life. That's great, some good fruit. And look at, you see that stream up top is purifying you at some level. You see one of those black cars is actually being removed from your life. Yay! Some good is happening in your life. However, you get a little darkness out and what's coming in at the bottom? Oh, no. You get some out and you get some in. Close off the enemy. What are you messing with the enemy for? Do not listen to him. Diacrino is to side against. But the problem is in the modern gospel, we side against God one day and side against the enemy the next. And all throughout the day, you are like a wave of the sea tossed to and fro. And your faith is not going to work the great work of God in your soul. The anatomy of true discipleship. Now, this is the process that many of us are going to be going through for the next nine weeks. Look at the black wall at the bottom. This is the most important dimension of it. The wall is set. And you say, no. I'm all in on Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean you're finished. However, Look at the top, the green up top. Now you have avenue for God to come in and all that is filthy within you to begin to be purged out. The purging isn't that fun, by the way. But oh, it's delightful. It's so wonderful to get those black cars out. You don't want them in there. They're killing you. And look at this. You're starting to see this this flow of fruit coming in. See my orange one? There it's ready to push out that one on the bottom level. We'll get that whole bottom level set with new white cars. I love the white cars. We're going to get that junk out. That's what discipleship is. And by the way, you know how Eric's talking to you today? I talk like this all the time. Get it out! I show no sympathy and empathy for the work of the flesh in your life. 
but I show a great amount of desire, compassion, encouragement. I mean, just inspiration for everything of God to be formed in you. You want to live, you want to be healthy in your Christian life, you need Jesus Christ. You don't need Allersley, you need Jesus Christ. The only thing we do here at Allersley is give Jesus Christ. That's our great secret. Jesus, 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 more Jesus. That's what saves. And this is more and more and more of Jesus. Now you look at this. We're purging out those black cars. This is the healthy flow of the river of life going through you. You're getting out what shouldn't be there, and you're putting in what should be. More and more and more of Jesus. More of Jesus, less of you. The anatomy of faithful living. Now, I know we're talking idealism here, okay? Because you could say, is it possible to live this way 24 hours a day for 90 years of your life? Technically, yes. According to the word of God, we have everything we need for life and godliness. Everything. However, we're in a battle, and it's like saying, if I go into battle, I know that you've said I'm going to make it out the other side, but will I have any shrapnel on my shoulder when I come out? It's likely you're going to get some shrapnel. However, when you get it, you don't cower to the enemy. You don't suddenly believe the enemy's going to take you down. If you allow in a black car, what should you do with it? Get it out of there. Close off the wall again. It's that simple. Let's not overcomplicate it. Let's not panic if a black car gets in. Let's just get it out. Okay, the fact that we allow in junk is not a reason to keep allowing it in. The fact that, yes, it may happen does not mean that that's now a license to say, well, Eric said you just allow in black cars every now and then. No. I told you, you should never allow in a black car. Ever. However, if you do allow in a black car, come to Jesus. And the same blood that cleansed you in the beginning is the same blood that will deal with that black car and get it out. God is faithful. He's an advocate. And he ever lives to make intercession for you. It's an amazing thought. He ever lives to be your strong deliverer. I see that black spot within your soul, Eric. Let me take care of it right now and quick. I'm so sorry. And if I make a wrong towards someone else, I make it right. And guess what? I return to this state. Look at God pouring in at the top. And look at the enemy. There's a wall, a barrier. Because I live by faith. I trust my God, and that means I do not listen to the enemy. Diacrinoing for God. That's what we do. You see, we're not supposed to, remember my statement in the beginning? No diacrino. And yet we're supposed to diacrino for God. What does that mean? This was the definition in the beginning. Decide against, to ally with one over against another. So let's look at what it would mean to have godly diacrino. To side against the lion voice. That voice is speaking, you side against it. It's a deliberate choice of soul to say, no, <laughs> no way am I listening to that enemy. To ally with the word of God over and against the whisperer. Isn't that the best description of the enemy? Whisperer. Oh, I can't believe it. Can you believe God did that to you? I can't believe God. Who? I mean, you trust him, you've served him, you've prayed, you came all the way to Ellerslie, and then he would do that to you. Don't buy it for a second. Your God did not change somewhere in the meantime. Your God is the same God you trusted in the beginning. The enemy has a new ploy. Do not listen to him. 
that whispering voice is to be cut off. To forsake a previous allegiance to doubt and to change your support from the deceitful candidate to, and vote in support of the king of kings. I have one vote, and my vote is not going to change from this moment forward. I vote for Jesus Christ. Always, only him. I don't care what the world around you says. I don't care what the church around you says. But, but, well, what about this? Oh, well, you never know. You do not budge. Your eyes are fixed on the king of kings. This is my last slide, by the way, for those of you that are like, oh. I had one uh, Ellerslie student that came back from the break, and uh, she said, yeah, I uh, went to a service, and they had a 30-minute sermon, and then it was just done. (laughs) Welcome to Ellerslie. (laughs) The return of the brave-hearted faith. I don't want you just cutting off what the enemy is saying. Here's what I want. I want to see men and women bold as lions. Not just saying no to the enemy, but saying yes to God. And when he reveals himself in scripture, I don't care if our Christian generation for the past three generations has not witnessed it. We say, my God has spoken. Awake, awake, put on strength, the arm of the Lord, as in the ancient days, as in the generations of old. I trust my God. And we step out with brave-hearted assurance that the same God that lived in and through Peter and Paul, the same God that lived in and through George Mueller and Hudson Taylor, the same God that lived through C.T. Studd and Gladys Aylward, that same God lives in us. We say no to the enemy. And we boldly step out with brave-hearted assurance towards our God. I don't want just faith. Well, maybe I should just say I want faith. I don't want little faith. I want faith. And that faith is brave-hearted by nature. I, you know, a faith the size of a mustard seed could tell a mountain to be removed and thrown into the sea. I have no idea what's beyond that. Could you imagine what faith the size of a football would be doing? That's not a bad prayer request. God, give me faith the size of a football. Not the kid version of a football, the NFL version of a football. That's a good prayer, by the way. Let's pray. Baptize us in your truth. And don't let us wiggle out. I pray that we would take the issues of our soul serious. That we would not excuse for a moment the bait of the enemy. That we would not entertain it for a moment. Make us Christians. Make us men and women of faith. And Lord Jesus, for those that are waffling, for those that have never yet fully given themselves to Jesus, I pray that that evidence and that substance from heaven would be made clear to their soul and that they would yield themselves and give themselves wholly and fully to you and turn from all that voice of darkness, all the ways of darkness, all the bait of darkness. We have all we need in Jesus Christ for life, for godliness, for the abundant existence in you. Not the easy one, but the abundant one.
Lord Jesus, I say thank you to you. Thank you for what you're just about to do. Not just what you're doing, but even what you're about to do. Lord, I love serving you. The great adventure of knowing you. There's nothing better than to be with Jesus. To know Jesus. To love Jesus. To serve Jesus. Bring on the trial. Bring on the fiery trial. Test our faith, Lord Jesus, and make us stronger. May we prove immovable, unbudgeable, unbreakable. We are believers. It's in the precious name of the one in whom we put our trust, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.